y'all did some nasty ass jokes on my ass too. Oh yeah, y'all didn't think I saw some of these motherfuckers. Since you love me so much. I remember this one, it striked a match like this one. What's that, Richard Pryor running down the street? Welcome to the News Never Ends. I'm Peter Ronson. And I'm Dan Ackerman. And we are joined again this week by Yasmin Nair. Hello. Lovely to be here. Another returning champ. Yeah. Thank you for joining us again. <laughs> My pleasure. So do you have any takes on the election so far? Not really, except that the only takes I have are when people show up on my Facebook wall <laughs> to argue about of all things Rachel Maddow and Pete Buttigieg. And I have really no interest at this point. I think people, for some reason, seem to think they can argue with me about their Democrat candidates. And I don't know how to convey to them. I really don't give a crap about your Democrat candidates. Are you excited about Bernie Sanders or... I'm not excited about anyone. I'm never excited about politicians. Mm -hmm. Because my attitude about voting and politicians is, you know, fight like hell if you have a candidate whom you're really interested and invested in. Fight like hell to get them elected. If they win, wonderful, but keep pushing them to do what they promised. If they lose, push the other person to keep doing what you want them to do. I think politics is not about being... To me, I think it's sort of pointless to be personally and deeply invested in politicians as people i think you should just be invested in them as politicians and figure out ways to make them do what you want politically that's what they're there for they're not there to be your heroes or your poster boys literally which i think is what sanders and corbyn particularly are for instance and so is you know certain groups or certain greek politicians Have you been following the stuff about the Liz Warren debt cancellation idea? No, I haven't. I know that's just like in the last 24 hours. Right. I've actually been working on a piece about Pete Buttigieg, which I don't have to talk about today, but I haven't (laughs) been following. Uh, I know that Warren is impressing more and more people on the left much more. Um, So I think those are all amazing ideas, you know, college cancellation of debt yeah i was surprised i was surprised that bernie hadn't endorsed that already Mm -hmm. and i wonder when they ask him about it what he'll Mm -hmm. have to say about it yeah hopefully he'll come up with um a position on that to try to be to the left of elizabeth warren on that he has in the past supported free college free public college which would be less costly than uh, the debt forgiveness plan that Elizabeth Warren is suggesting. Oh, interesting. Mm. Uh, and still, you remember the response that he got for that plan and continues to get that it's completely unrealistic. Oh, yes, yeah. So I, it's interesting because I haven't, I feel like the um, response to Elizabeth Warren's plan has been so much more positive than right. when Bernie Sanders comes out with a like broad redistributionist plan. And I think that's for a lot of reasons. I think one of the reasons is because a lot of people in the media who have like an entrenched bias against the left and and getting a left candidate kind of see Elizabeth Warren's only role in the race to be a spoiler to Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. So this is a great plan that she proposes and Bernie Sanders should adopt a version of it. But I do feel like part of the coverage mainly exists to uh, try to cut into Bernie Sanders' support recognizing that Elizabeth Warren is not going to be a serious contender. Interesting. And especially this week now that our boy Seth Moulton is in the race, 
now that Joe Biden yeah. is supposed to announce on Wednesday. I don't know if you saw this, but... Is he really announcing? Yeah, he's yeah. supposed to announce I, on Wednesday. I will say this about Joe Biden. As someone who remembers watching the Anita Hill testimony for a very long time, there are at least four generations of women, I think, including many millennials who will not never forgive him for what he did. Yeah, um, or, nor should the man, they. Yeah, the man yeah. should never even have been vice president. It was abs- I still have memories, stark memories, of watching him grill her. And um, that's what we were saying. And besides everything else, you know, all these other political issues. Yeah. I course. think Biden is the classic white gay, white daddy <laughs> everyone wants. What's interesting to me is that there was this poll, right, where that where apparently uh, Bernie Sanders was ranked first, then Joe Biden, then Pete Buttigieg. And everyone was surprised about Buttigieg being ranked third, being a relative unknown. But I remember thinking, Biden hasn't even announced and he's running right. second. Uh, which is such a daddy problem. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of people have made the argument he's only kept on those polls before announcing to cut into Bernie's lead to make Mm. it look like Bernie isn't the front runner, which he seems to be otherwise. In terms of policy challenges to the Bernie candidacy, though, I just take the position of this meme that at Anarchish did uh, about the Zizek-Peterson debate, which is this picture of the two of them, and the tweet says, Why does Zizek, the larger philosopher, not simply eat the other? <laughs> right? Like, I just hope... Right. Yeah, I hope Elizabeth yeah. Warren continues to be a policy farm and that she produces more and more of this stuff and can eventually get on board the Bernie train and that he'll adopt policies that are better than his. But, yeah, it seems like that's where the movement is. I like the tweet about the debate that was like, um, can't wait for Jordan Peterson, who has spent his entire career talking about how chaos is a feminine energy to be slapped by Zizek. Yes. We'll link to that in the description. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, are you into Zizek? We were trying to decide what we thought you yeah. might feel about him uh, on the on your way here. So my introduction to Zizek was in my early film studies years, actually. You know, he's very famous for that book everything you always wanted to know about Lacan but was scared to ask Hitchcock. Mm. I think I got the title wrong. Mm. Um, But it was basically a reading of Lacan through Hitchcock films. And it was actually really great and really interesting. And actually, I am in agreement and I like a lot of his work. I feel like Zizek over the years, especially I think in the last decade or so, has just become a caricature of himself. And I think that's unfortunate because actually I do think he has some really interesting ideas. I mean, you know, he was one of the first to, well, not one of the first, but he's written about this idea of, for instance, the idea of historical trauma located in the Holocaust as the only place of trauma, for instance, right? And he's been critical of that and he's talked about what does it mean for European politics if we don't think about other kinds of genocide that are happening, like even now, for instance. So I think theoretically, politically, He's actually had some really interesting ideas. He's pushed the boundaries in interesting ways. I feel like he has become what I think some people like Corey Robin are about to become, which is, oh, you know, my take on Corey Robin, uh, whom I used to like, <laughs> was, and I sort of vaguely knew personally, was that he went from being Corey Robin to becoming Corey Robin. And I think Slavoj Žižek is the same way. He, he's gone from being Slavoj Žižek, this interesting Slovenian philosopher, with views that you might not always agree with, but which at least made you ponder and think. He's gone from being Slavoj Žižek to becoming Slavoj Žižek. Sort of a Hegelian progression. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> being to becoming. <laughs> if you, yeah. 
Um, so it's unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the man's an idiot at all, which is how some people want to describe him. But I think he's he's become a cottage industry. And that was clear. I mean, just the difference between Peterson and Zizek. Peter was saying this before you got here. I mean, it couldn't have been clearer that Zizek actually is an academic, right? I mean, exactly. he's had these scandals about, you know, minor stuff about uh, plagiarism where, like, people who are writing, you know, his interns are writing, like, the introductions to his book, which every academic does. Yeah, or, like... At that level. I don't know if this was levied against Zizek. I think it might have been self-plagiarism. Right. Where you're, like, He just you know, repeats himself. Yeah, which, of course, he does repeat himself all the time for sure yeah but i agree with that i know he said some like very disappointing things like endorsing trump which he didn't really endorse trump no it was he, a troll i know he was trolling yeah. and he i mean he really was trolling and that's and, the problem right that's not a defense of him right, right. No, like, i know yeah. i know you want he was, him, right yeah. yeah uh yeah exactly he was trolling and like or when he said that um like trans people shouldn't use the cis bathrooms because they should have their own bathrooms. He was like, "No, what I'm saying is there should be four bathrooms." <laughs> and like, yeah, there should be a bathroom, an anti bathroom, yeah. and a sin bathroom. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, it's it's sad because uh, for a lot of reasons, but you know, in that debate, one of the first things he does when he's introducing himself is set him up, set himself up that way. He identifies himself as like the anti LGBTQ plus. Yeah ideology person he's like i have critiqued that ideology and so that's what distinguishes me from like liberals and i mean do you think there is any chance that jordan peterson's followers could go to slava zizek that's what i felt a little bit like at parts of that debate like you said the opening where he was like look the left hates me too and then also he was well, just he said liberals i think okay to be fair um he was also just throughout the debate extremely conciliatory to jordan peterson yeah it was um, hardly yeah. a debate which that's I thought, what, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's what Nathan Robinson wrote, yeah. wrote a really funny piece about the <laughs> debate, where it basically ended with him saying, I'm sorry, I've failed. I have no idea what yeah. the hell this debate is about. I heard he was like live blogging <laughs> it and he just yeah. gave up. Yeah, he through. just literally gave up. And, but it's hilarious yeah. because he actually has a critique of their views as well. He talks about, uh, you know, how Peterson sort of only reads the Communist Manifesto and then takes off from it. That was so funny. Right. right. So I think... I mean, Nathan's an extraordinarily smart person, um, so I suspect he actually saw much, but he just decided it wasn't worth his time to live blog this ridiculous event. <laughs> uh, right, sorry, I interrupted you, but I had some, I was well, going to say something about Zizek. Yeah, Zizek, so I thought he was, like, very conciliatory, and like you said, Jordan Peterson made it very clear that he had not... He's made his whole career about, like, talking about postmodernist neo-Marxists, and he admit he had never read any Marx, and so he read the Communist Manifesto to prepare for the debate. But so, I mean, I think it, it was just a good strategy. Which is barely a couple of hundred pages. Yeah, right. Right, and, and has very... Which is not dense. Right, and it's not a representative text no, not of Marx's yeah. theory. No, read all of Capital. Right, like, yeah. he said stuff about how, <laughs> you know... Read Risa first. <laughs> right, yeah, like... Yeah, yeah. or read Zizek if right. you're debating him. right. Uh, yeah. Zizek's books on how to read Marx. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah and I mean, say stuff like, you know, Marxism has nothing to say about the, uh, you know, man's relationship with nature, which is just not true. Like, that's a huge part of Marxist theory. I think yeah. Zizek is sort of like the, grad. I think what Zizek has become, and was at least for a while, is the grad student's introduction to theory. Mm. You know, which is what he was for me for a while. But you eventually have to grow out of Zizek. I think the only... Although, of course, he's made an extraordinarily successful career. You know, he writes in all the top uh, places, LRB. I mean, you name it, he writes there. 
He's obviously made a ton of money off his work. He travels around the world. He's also part of this very weird institute called the European Graduate School, which has shit tons of money. Hmm. Um, and he obviously gets, yeah. yeah. So the, he's part of this academic racket. That's what he's become, I right. think. Um, which I think is unfortunate for the opportunities we might have had or we, you know, to think about academic intellectual work in a different context outside academia, which is actually what Zizek's work has offered historically. If you look at the progression or rather the deep progression of his work. But anyway, that's all I have to say about Zizek, who I will say, you know, is just a bit of a waste of a person hmm. right now, I think. So I have a, I have the thought, which is that Jordan Peterson's fan base, the people who are into Jordan Peterson, 10 years ago, they were the new atheists, right? They were like Christopher yes, Hitchens and Sam yes. Harris. And Jordan Peterson represents a real break from Sam Harris. There was actually, Sam Harris had an episode of his podcast that Jordan Peterson was on, and they ended up just yelling at each other the whole time, right? Because Sam Harris's whole thing... He doesn't think dragons exist. Yeah, ex right, exactly. Sam Harris's whole thing is, like, you know, reading the Bible, uh, and it says, like, you know, it rained for 40 days, and, like, really? Uh, if it rained for 40 days, I think there would be this much water, and, like, you know right, what there I mean? would be a fossil record. Just, like, just an annoying level of literalism. And yeah, and again, the new atheists themselves have become caricatures. Yeah. yeah uh, and then Jordan Peterson, I think, offered a lot of new atheists a way out of the contradictions of new atheism. Because, right, his whole thing is like, no, uh, you know, we don't have to be literal about everything. Chaos is a dragon. Right. And, like, uh, we need to defeat, like, feminine disorder and yeah. stuff. And then, so when Jordan Peterson was on Sam Harris's podcast... They were just, they were at an impasse because Sam Harris was like, do you really believe chaos is a dragon? And like, what does that mean? And they just couldn't move on from that point. Yeah, do you think witches yeah. live in swamps? <laughs> um, and then I, I could see those people progressing now to Zizek mm. because Zizek can solve a lot of the contradictions of Peterson. First of all, he's just a lot more informed than Peterson. Um, and that is one of the main things that yeah. people come to these people for is text they can quote, you know, like Peterson has a couple, he has Jung, you know, which I guess is something Sam Harris doesn't use. But I mean, Zizek can mobilize a lot of different texts and yeah. you might be hearing the lobster fans. In and a like Lacan is, is much more Lacan. interesting than Jung, I think. Yeah, I mean, um, like much yeah. smarter for sure. And then it's still a way to be like, I'm not the PC people, you know, I'm not mm -hmm. like the SJWs. Mm -hmm. This is an alternative uh, who is also in opposition to the SJWs. And I think there's a lot of appeal in that. Yeah, that's definitely a red line. Yeah, but then it was just amazing how uninformed Jordan Peterson was. Yeah. Like, not a big surprise, but he... I mean, there's yeah. a there's a moment, I think, like an hour in. It's maybe after the first time that Zizek speaks, and he admits that he couldn't really follow Zizek's talk. Yeah. Which, you know, I know this is a joke about him, that he's incomprehensible. But, I mean, the, like, you shouldn't do that in a debate. Right. <laughs> Unless it's, like, an insult or something. And I also, frankly, find the genre of debates rather ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. So we actually had a whole episode about this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we had Nile, uh, mm -hmm. who's this German journalist, mm -hmm. talking about... Because the Germans, I don't know if this surprises you, they're very into debate shows. Uh, <laughs> right? The English are, and I grew yeah, up totally. with English-influenced uh, schooling system so the English are ridiculous as you know right oh, the whole Oxford Cambridge system is built on this notion that you know very smart people can debate each other <laughs> and people I love and adore and who I think are actually really really smart love debating but I actually think that debating is such a 
boy thing, frankly. It's about... I don't understand what the point of it is except to have some sort of intellectual gladiator, you know, event. It's... you. I don't, I don't know what people actually learn from watching people go at it in a debate. And I, there's such a pseudo-intellectual, and I mean in the most literal sense of pseudo-intellectual enterprise to it all. Um, it's, I always think of it as sort of men schlonging it out, you know, <laughs> yeah, putting down their hands and hitting each, hitting each other with, um, with their penises. Which is not to say that it's a masculine, but I think it is born of a certain sort of masculinist um, intellectual culture, which sees itself as high intellectual culture. If you can, I, I don't understand the point of debates. I've never really cared for them. I think someone once offered to fly me out somewhere to do a debate, and I wasn't able to do it for physical reasons. But uh, my attitude about debates is if anyone wants me to debate someone else, they would have to pay me a million dollars. <laughs> and I'm hoping that it'll keep them off, you know? <laughs> but Yeah, someday the monk debates are just gonna pay you a million dollars. <laughs> You'll know that all that money came from murdering miners in Zimbabwe. Like Yeah, do you think Jordan Peterson someday will get sick of all the masculine order of debates and he'll have to like <laughs> you know, self correct with a DM chat that he talks in? Like that seems like the chaotic feminine. I mean, I do feel like by the end of the debate, Jordan Peterson wished that he had Zizek's shtick. Oh yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. He it's looks shocking. He did not prepare, eh? Yeah, and like Zizek is just doing Jordan Peterson shtick so much yes. better. That's right. Than he mm. is like, I mean, how much better is it to that to like? You could say you know, chaos is a dragon or whatever, and we must like defeat the dragon, like do that hero's journey like stuff. Or you could be with Zizek talking about like the mirror phase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or like how Stalinism like went wrong. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I also think that every debate should have a question about what you think should happen to Notre Dame now. Mm. Yeah. Or what is the American version of Notre Dame? Mm. Like, what is a building that mm. could get destroyed in America that would have equal... Gotta be a Statue of Liberty now. Which is that? French. Whoa. <laughs> Did yeah. you just walk me into that? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there is one. I think the the closest thing almost would be like uh, Yosemite or something. Mm. Would be like, like a natural one. Yeah. Well, definitely, I mean, France is like a nice, flat country, and America is all about that kind of natural yeah. miracleness about it. Like, yeah, maybe that is the equivalent of this kind of centuries-long achievement through, you know, human yeah. slavery or whatever. Or Wrigley Field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if Wrigley Field burned yeah. down, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, were you into any of the, like... Uh, you know, roasting marshmallows over Notre Dame or any of those kind of memes. No, no. Do you I, care? Well, you know, I did feel this seems odd because I've not been to France. I've not seen Notre Dame. But it, I felt a certain sadness hearing about it. Uh, I, just as I felt a lot of sadness when I heard about, you know, the giant Buddha statues in Afghanistan, right? Being torn down by the Taliban, etc. I, mean, I, I, I don't... To be honest, I'm not really in sync with this particular narrative about, oh yes, this is all just bourgeois, you know, construction and we should just burn it to the ground and roast marshmallows <laughs> or whatever, you know, because to say that something that has existed as a built construction for about, say, almost 800, 900 years, I realize there's a big difference between 800 and 900, so, <laughs> but, but let's say over 800 years, is 
and to say that all of it is somehow can be encapsulated by ah, the, you know, the terms are ah, bourgeois construction, I think is so simplistic because mm. a monument like that, first of all, for Parisians and for the French, is part of their psyche in, in ways that I think but it, it, France is a much smaller country than the United States, and we're not able, I think, to conceptually think about how much. A place like that is part of a city and a city's consciousness and a city's sort of DNA. And I think also that, yes, of course, every monument of that sort, particularly, you know, religious monuments, you know, every monument is doused, you know, is steeped in the blood of all sorts of horrendous labor practices, for lack of a better term. It has horrific histories, religions, more often than not, are embedded in horrific histories, yes. But those histories are also deeply complicated. It's not as simple as, you know, there were all these awful uh, people and then there were all the poor, you know. I mean, I'm thinking about, for instance, the narrative about the Egyptian pyramids. For a long time was uh, the pharaohs used slave labor. And it turns out actually to have been way more complicated than that. Um, which is not to say that the labor, quote-unquote, labor practices were unproblematic, but that, you know, the, the ways in which these monuments come up through a culture and how they come to define a culture and for whom are far more complicated than bad people over good people or oppressors over the oppressed. Um, which is not to say there are not oppressors and oppressed. I mean, so the Taj Mahal, for instance, is one that I would be very critical of. I don't want to see it go. I think I've only seen it as a child. But the Taj Mahal in India is iconic and it's iconic all over the world. But the Taj Mahal was basically built by a man who made his wife pregnant practically every, every time she gave birth. She was like this giant bee, you know, the queen, basically, you know, left on... Yes, I'm sure he loved her, but he fucked her a lot. <laughs> and she, <laughs> she died, I think, in childbirth. We can huh. look that up. But I remember because I had a leftist civics professor, a civics teacher when I was in school. And when I say school, I mean what you would call primary, you know, grade seven, eight. Mm -hmm. I, I was fortunate to have a deeply leftist um, teacher, Doita Datta, if you're listening to this. <laughs> um, but, um, and she was the one, you know, because we were all like, oh, all of us were in the 13, 14. We were like, oh, the, the Taj Mahal. We were learning about the Taj Mahal. Oh, the Taj Mahal, story of love. And she looked at us. I mean, this would never be possible now in an American school, I'm sure. She said, do you realize how horrible, you know, the basis of that whole story is? Right. So uh, every, and yet, right? And then, of course, now if you look at the Taj Mahal now, and you look at the fact that it's in a country where of a billion people where about 99% of them are living in terrible poverty <laughs> um, you know what does a Taj Mahal mean other mm -hmm. than a tourist trap and yet mm -hmm. at the same time right there are these com com now for instance yes you have the religious Hindu fundamentalists the Hindu fundamentalists are actually even talking occasionally I think about desecrating or burning it down because it's a Muslim monument right exactly right so it, it's 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 part everything is part of such complicated refractions so I find I found all that memifying and that sort of you know easy talk about burn it down versus whatever I found the the sentimentality annoying as well you know mm -hmm. yes but also to be frank and dad knows about this in terms of our how we live outside the internet one of my issues has been about how people are constructing their intellectual lives 
based on what the, the discussions are online. And I think online discussions for the most part are, are planed down to sort of the most easily assimilable uh, memes, really. We're all sort of memifying our intellectual life. And I wish we could have a more complicated conversation. Maybe we can have that today about, you know, what does it mean for a historic monument? So here's one thing I do find interesting. I'm sorry, I know I'm talking a lot, but here's something I did find interesting. I think yesterday I was, or today I think I was watching Democracy Now! and they were covering these protests by uh, Parisians and others, I think, were coming into Paris to engage in the protests. So the protests out, out, you know, near the site are about, this is amazingly conceptual, the protests are by people who have already figured out that the, what is it, almost a billion or more raised by the French government? Uh, well, it's, I, yeah, I, by like, yeah, French millionaires. Right. Last right. I checked in, it was only a couple hundred million, okay. but it might be up to a billion at this point. Yeah, well, however, at, the point you know, at some release. point, I think for me, after a hundred million, everything is sort of Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, we should be more specific about that. But yes, I think it's like three to four hundred million. You're right about that. It's not a billion. I think they were projecting that. Sure. Which I think will happen very easily, right, at this rate. But what was fascinating to me is that the protesters were protesting the fact that there was all this money being given through private hands to rebuild right. the uh, to, to 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 rebuild Notre Dame, yeah. and a woman was saying, "Well, well the church it, is broke." Sure. <laughs> Where are they going to get that money? Vatican only yes. has to reach his hand into that bloody cellar and pick out a few, you know. Where's Francis going to raise the yeah. scratch for that? What are you talking about? Right? Yeah, well, they've had a lot of right. settlements lately. But I guess my, 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 right, but my, my what, what fascinated me is that people in France are actually protesting what, for us, I think in America, would be an extremely weirdly abstract conceptual idea. They're already protesting neoliberalism, mm -hmm. right? They're basically saying, we know that this is going to mean that the French government is going to give the, and they were using words like neoliberal, they, they're going to give these neoliberals, you know, it's going to be a neoliberal enterprise where the very rich are going to get all these tax breaks as if they had not given any money at all. So they would essentially recover right, exactly. the 300 million. Which means the government exactly. is paying for it. Exactly. Through the guise of these rich people. So I think it's astonishing, and I don't think that would ever happen in the United States. That kind of level of critique, right? In the streets. That I think is what we need to talk about in yes. terms of Notre Dame. Not, you know, is it a bourgeois? Because obviously for these protesters, Notre Dame is important. But they're also attuned to the ways it's becoming a part of this neoliberal framework. I find that a much more interesting and complicated conversation to have yeah. than to say, oh, burn it, let it burn to the... I, I have to say, I find a lot of my left comrades deeply, severely annoying and deeply juvenile, <laughs> you know, in terms of how they have these knee-jerk responses based on, I think, what I often call sort of a, a comic book rendition of communism, really. Yeah. Well, well um, the let it burn response uh, reminds me a lot of Hannah Gadsby, which I know we're going to talk more about when in her Lovely special. And we can talk more about Notre Dame, but it just is making me think of in her special when she wants to cancel Pablo Picasso. Yes. Right? Because it's like you're saying there are, uh, he was uh, he was toxic. He was a misogynist. He did all these bad things. So 
let's cancel him. Yeah. She's ridiculous because actually, you know, my... Uh, well, her, before you jump into yes. it, could I say one more thing Please. on the Notre Dame thing? Just because I, you know, I experienced a lot of that kind of digestion by the internet into, you know, something that you could talk about with your uh, whoever in real life that you like had these talking points handed to you at some point. It was amazing. And it made me think of what Jon Stewart said about 24 hour news, which is that it's invented for one event and that event is 9-11. Right. And this right. was a similar kind of, you know, mismatch of the media to the event because there were all these people talking about, you know, as, and, you know, the destruction of something like the Buddhas in Afghanistan uh, just doesn't compare to to, like this one piece of the church that burned down right really. like if we had not known about this for 24 hours and we had read in a newspaper the following morning part of Notre Dame burns down it would be a totally different story yes. and we would react to yes. all of it dramatically yes. differently. And, and also because uh like unlike those Buddha statues this wasn't an attack this it was, was an accident a, and neglect and, and yeah and neglect and right. incompetence they did not yeah. pay their contractors particularly well I mean that's the story yeah that's, that's sort of going up and down. You don't think it was uh, the anarchists? <laughs> right? I mean, and I have to say, honestly, I was just so relieved to hear that it wasn't, of course. Uh, you know, um, someone right. non-white. So did you hear what Glenn Beck said about it? He was like, uh, you know, it, it seems like it wasn't Muslims that did this, but if it was, we would never find out. He just like was as there was still fire. Yeah, Tom for that, I'm sure. Quite and, and there yeah. was actually, I don't know if you saw this, there was a fire at the Al Aqsa Mosque at the same time, and mm-hmm. so there were a lot of conspiracy theories going around. You know, Islamophobic ones, anti-Semitic ones. Right. You know, fires tend to do that. Right. Um, well, and yeah. even in Chicago, where fires have historically been a way yeah. for the city to you know to make way and to gentrify i mean there have been as you know this is a city of intentional fires right yes but it was interesting to see just the total mismatch of Mm -hmm. online media to the event of notre dame burning while it was burning aside from because basically all you could really experience was the kind of fantastic images of Mm -hmm. this you know enormously like unspeakably famous church on fire and all the buzz around it was just so confused Mm -hmm. and reactionary and then eventually you know these millionaires gave some money and then there was a discourse that developed and so people could talk about oh can you believe they're not giving it to the black churches that have had these arson strings in the south and there were like all these talking points and it's you know I, I don't know about the case in France but it seems like both that kind of raw emotion and that kind of more nuanced discussion about how do these events interact with the regime of neoliberalism that we live under both of those are things we have no access to in american media no and i mean i'm glad you brought up the word emotion because something that struck me today after watching all these people saying if you're not mourning for sri lanka i don't want to talk to you or you know you're horrible Mm. why if you mourned for notre dame but not sri lanka as if somehow on social media you're supposed to you have to have, it's really strange the emotional life we've constructed and the ways in which we imbue our presence our collective and individual presences on social media in these weirdly emotional ways and the thing that occurred to me this just today and i have to expand on it somehow is exactly how much emotion are we supposed to have i know this is a right? consistent concern it's for you yes. because it's as if we live in a time now where we have to feel emotional about everything. And first of all, someone who doesn't say anything about Sri Lanka might actually be just as shocked and sort of horrified as someone who does go on about it on social media. So there's that obvious point to make. But also, 
perhaps people are not as emotionally invested in some things as they are in others. Uh, and we don't really have a way of accounting for it. And the easiest way we've come, you know, the, the thing that we do in terms of accounting for it is just insist that, well, this must be racist. And I have no doubt that this is true. I have no doubt that there are people, for instance, who will say, well, losing Notre Dame, we're losing, you know, an apex, a point of Western civilization. As Ben Shapiro said. Yeah. I mean, while it was on fire. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and <laughs> no surprise. Right. And of course, if we lose, you know, these silly Buddha statues in Kabul or a Yemeni uh, monument, uh, which, you know, which is well, much of Yemen is now devastated. Sure. Palmyra. I mean. Right. Exactly, those wonderful historic places uh, are also lost. And yes, I'm sure there's, of course there is racism, but there's also, but I think it's, what concerns me is less, this weird diagnose, uh, we think of social media as sort of a diagnostic tool for our emotions. And we also imagine that we must have emotions about everything. And really that's, I just think that's really bad for our collective mental health, frankly. I I don't know how much work has actually been done on, the ways in which social media is rejiggering our mental health synapses. I think it's being done by people with the wrong intentions. Right. You know? Yeah, I, I was just thinking that. I think it's yeah. like Pierre exactly. Omidyar is like exactly. using the usual social yeah. media, sort of the almost luddite. You know, social media is bad for you. And we are all the experiment. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I'm reading yeah. Shiva Vaidyanathan's book on uh, Facebook, uh, mm. and it sort of tends towards that. Uh, you know, social media, Facebook is just so bad for you. It's a very classical sort of Neil Postman-esque um, diagnosis, which is Neil Postman wrote the famous book about how television was basically rotting our brains and mm. children, blah, blah, blah. And that, that that particular mode of critique has been fairly prevalent in a whole, you know, uh, line of uh, thinking about media in general. Hmm. Well, speaking of media, sorry, I mm, no, no, no. distracted us from our main... Go there, go there place today but yes so you have written about hannah gadsby you have done more thinking about (laughs) hannah gadsby than i ever would like to do so (laughs) could you do some of it in front of us do you know um has she been up to anything lately i know she has a new special that she's she has a new special which is named i think douglas it's called douglas it's another name all of her specials yeah she's the warby parker of (laughs) stand-up comedians Yes, so my Hannah Gadsby piece, I'm also excited to announce, uh, was picked up by the storied, famous, amazing, historic publication. You're going to say crack.com, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Evergreen Review. Mm. Um, So I'm very proud of that. And Evergreen Review, when they republished it, published it with a lot of, uh, with every single image in that piece, is a work of art by an astonishing cubist woman painter and so that which brings me you know to the point you'd raised earlier pete about hannah gadsby and her dismissal of pub of picasso and as she keeps calling it cubism <laughs> she keeps disdainfully you know calling it cubism as she keeps saying but you've got to have cubism um and she says and it's such a ridiculous uh, point to make not only because you know many incredible artists of uh, many incredible cubist artists were actually women but also her take on art is bizarre and unlearned she has said 
quite frequently that you know she has a degree in art history and she has said quite often i think that she was the student who didn't do particularly well, and my suspicion is that she barely squeaked by. And, I, and you can say, and it was tell. an undergraduate degree too. Yeah, it was an undergraduate yeah. degree, and you can tell that she sort of, you know, has a very Cliff Notes version of uh, art history. I, the point about her dismissal of Pablo Picasso is not that pa Picasso was not quite possibly an asshole, although actually his comp his his relationships with women were extraordinarily complicated, as were the women in his life, actually. My piece is going to that in some detail, so I'll just leave it for that. But the idea that somehow an artist, a, a, a man becomes famous for a certain kind of art, and therefore the art is awful because the man was an asshole, is so bizarre to me. Um, because what would you then... So for instance, when I look at uh, images by Mary Cassatt, um, famous American painter, really well known for her... She's actually an, she was actually an astonishing artist and very complicated, but she's most well known for what I call sort of the maternal images, uh, images of women uh, and their children, for instance. Um, but I would want to know about Mary Cassatt, okay, given her time and date, you know, the times that she lived in. So what were her relationships to her help? <laughs> you know, was right. she an asshole? Uh, what were her issues around gender? How did she become famous in a male-dominated world, whom does she have to push aside other women for that, etc., etc. There's no such thing as, a, you know, I don't know what Godsby wants. Uh, right, yeah, the end point of that, it, it just becomes you can only like right. people's art if they were not problematic. And who the hell is not problematic? Yeah. And we might ask that question of Godsby herself. Um, <laughs> she is, for instance, right now uh, linked to Joel Soloway. They both to the best of my knowledge, they are still dating. Yeah, that's what she's doing now, is she's banging Jill Soloway. <laughs> and Jill Soloway is not unproblematic, because you, I went to see Hannah Gadsby and Jill Soloway, actually, uh, when Soloway came to Chicago to promote her book, um, the name of which uh, escapes me, as so many names do, and Pete and Dana quickly look um, it up. Jill Soloway, by the way, is best known for being the creator of Transparent. Transparent, exactly. So here's what was interesting about that. So here's Hannah Gadsby, She wants right? it, desire, she wants it. power, she wants it, right? No, it's, you know, quote, unquote, ironic. Okay. Ironic, as all of these things are. Got it, got it. Um, but here's what's interesting. So you have Hannah Gadsby, who is all about, oh, you know, men, are, men who are problematic should not be praised in any way, etc., etc. Everything has to be pure. And that is essentially what she is arguing. So I went to the show... Uh, well, <laughs> I call it a show. It was actually that was a bizarre, bizarre event. Um, was this at the Sam Co-op? Uh, no, 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 no. So it was hosted, and I want to be clear: it was only hosted by women and children first. Okay. But I do not hold. I know for a fact that women and children first were not responsible for the shit show. The whole thing became. <laughs> it was so popular that they had to take it to the gigantic school building in Uptown. Um, you know the one I mean. Um, which Lee, I guess, rents out its ma massive sort of cathedral-like space to to big events like this. So that's how big it was. And I went to this event, and it was a complete shit show for reasons we can go into later. It was completely disorganized. You could tell that Soloway had absolutely no idea what the hell she was doing. And Hannah Gadsby, surprisingly, was actually the only thing that actually held the whole thing together, to my surprise. But that wasn't the issue. The issue was that... Soloway is very much linked, yes, to Transparent. Transparent, as we all know, is linked to uh, Jeffrey Tambor, 
who has been accused mm-hmm. by, I think, multiple accusers. Mm-hmm. And I'm not taking a stand on whether or not I believe them or not, but he has been accused of fairly serious uh, sexual violations, right? Soloway did not bring that up at all. Did anyone ask her about it? That's what was interesting. They constructed the whole event so that no one could even ask hmm. questions. Really interesting. So now you have motherfucking Hannah Gadsby, who writes this piece for which she's become hugely famous, critiquing a man who is dead, a famous artist, for being an asshole, on stage with basically her lover, who has not only not issued any kind of statement about, you know, in public, is not issuing any statement in public about the man who basically made her show and the book that she's promoting possible, and who has now also constructed an event where people are not allowed actually to ask questions. It was it was ridiculous. Right. So I think this, you know, um, there was such deep hypocrisy about that. And okay, let's let's move on through that and say fine. So what? She was hypocritical. Well, it does matter because I think Gatsby's shtick is also her authenticity. Her entire show is about. I am authentic because I have suffered and I'm telling you my trauma, therefore I am most authentic. And if comedy is not authentic, if it is not grounded in trauma, it's not authentic, it's not worth it. That's really her entire shtick. Um, And here you have this deeply hypocritical shit show, which does not, which could have taken the opportunity. Hannah Gadsby herself could have said to Jill Soloway, well, darling, do you want to at least talk about Jeffrey? (laughs) But no, none of that. Um, What did they talk about? Who the fuck knows? (laughs) It was a real shit show. It really was. So it was really weird. They had this sort of event where Gadsby and Soloway spoke, sitting on chairs and sort of talking to each other. Then Soloway's mother came on and Soloway's sister was banging away at one of those piano thingies in the background. Then they had a couple of at least one local Chicago activist whom I admire a lot, Paige Pajonis, um, who talks about intersex issues. So they tried to make it, I think, sort of an event-ish that included more than just Soloway. Oh, and then at one point, at the very beginning, Soloway said very clearly, this is really bizarre, she, um, she, they said uh, very clearly that although they used their pronouns, they were okay, you know, if, and they looked at the audience and said, if you're someone who's known me all my life, as she and if you inadvertently or otherwise you know use another call me she i'm okay with it it's okay it's all cool i'm you know this, we're all on a journey together yada 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 a couple of times her own mother their own mother excuse me referred to them as she and she came running out from from the audience and started yelling at her mother <laughs> And well, sister. mothers deserve to get yelled at more, yeah. you know. But, but it was really strange, you know, because she, they had just said something like, you know, and I apologize if I misgendered them at the very beginning, um, but they had just, it was really bizarre. It was also very badly organized. And then they kept cutting the program in, you know, they kept cutting into the program. Mm. And for some other reason as well, they just kept running out and saying, no, 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 that's not what's supposed to happen. We're not supposed to be doing this right now. We're supposed to be doing that. No one seemed to have a handle on how the show was supposed to go. It sounds kind of like a Jean Genet masterpiece. (laughs) (laughs) It was bizarre. It was truly bizarre. It wasn't, and like I said, politically it was very, very strange. Yeah. It's um, actually making me think of this thing that Slava Zizek says. 
he, he has the joke. He has the Jewish joke where it's the um, three Jews on uh, Shabbat in the temple, and the first uh, the first guy is you know the richest guy in town, and he gets in front of the bima, and he goes, "Oh God, I'm nothing. You're everything. Uh, I'm the lowest. You're the highest." Uh, and then the rabbi, the most respected person in the town, gets up next next to the bima and says, "Oh God." Uh, you're you're everything. I'm nothing. Uh, I'm just a speck of dirt compared to you. Uh, and then finally, the third guy, who's a beggar, just a, a homeless person in the neighborhood, gets on the beam and says, "Oh God, uh, you're everything. I'm nothing. Uh, you're the highest. I'm the lowest." Um, and then the rich man elbows the rabbi and goes, "Oh, look who thinks he's nobody all of a sudden." <laughs> right. So just to make the point that when people right try to assert their marginality there is often there is a there's a power dynamic to that and there's often an attempt to position yourself uh at the same time that you are claiming your marginality and that seems very true with someone like hannah gadsby whose whole routine is about you know real struggles that she's had and real experiences of being marginalized but then she is also now in a position of being a very powerful person in show business and and being in a real position of power. And I think there's a real... I'm writing something again. One of my backburner pieces is titled Your Story Will Kill You. Because I think there's a real... I think that people like Hannah Gadsby can survive fine. You know, they will be able to afford the best analysts and therapists. Uh, they will have all the social support they need. Um, but my concern is that there are generations of people, especially young people, especially women, especially LGBTQ people, especially people of color, spoken word operates on, on this particular assumption that it is your story of trauma that you must use to get yourself into circulation as a person with a story to tell. And not only must you have a story to tell, but it must be about the inner workings of your, you know, basically your emotional innards must be spilled out every single fucking night. Now, Hannah Gatsby can do that over and over again. She's earning a lot of money. She can take all the breaks she needs. And I also think for her, there's a way probably she's figured out how to negotiate that, that moving back and forth between life and constantly reliving your trauma, as it were, that's not available to, for instance, the average, you know, LGBTQ POC person um, who's pushed out onto the stage at the age of, say, 14 and told, relive your trauma of living in the ghetto. I mean, I live in Hyde Park on the South Side, which is predominantly African-American. There's a lot of spoken word crap. Um, and most of it exploits young people of color and the only way they can get attention and funding is if they constantly talk about their traumas but as to the best of my knowledge there is no support system for them in terms of how learning how to deal with the aftermath of telling that trauma out loud there is a reason why therapy and slash or psychoanalysis is between the counselor or therapist or analyst and the patient. It's a very private uh, ritual, actually. It's a ritual and it's a function and it's a process. There's a reason why it's a process between two people. Um, telling your story out loud is actually often as traumatic and you need support to help you work through what it means to have brought it up to the surface and then to process it takes a long, long time. 
And I don't think that sort of process is being afforded to a lot of people, women, POC, LGBTQ people, who are basically told, make your career off telling your trauma. Um, so I think um, I don't know how we can measure, I can, I, I don't know how we can, how I can convince people to sort of think ahead, but I just see a lot of damage done, I think, to people down the line. Um, Gadsby is making money off her crap, of her trauma. And I know I'm calling it crap, but that. Well, I definitely believe that there's a conspiracy to encourage think pieces and TV reviews for writing to just embarrass people that they can never be a real writer again. I mean, I think whole generations of, <laughs> you know, usable journalists and novelists have been ruined by just the encouragement of the internet think piece economy to only talk about their dramas uh, or like what, you know, what they find important mm. in Game of Thrones representation. Uh, yeah. By the way, which I I watched Game of Thrones and I was just reading some of the quote unquote takes and I thought, what is this crap? What is this crap? <laughs> I, or I just think that that's an interesting distinction between kind of like a liberal worldview and a, and a leftist worldview. Like I know the identity politics gets thrown around and it gets used by like right wing people. And also, kind of also leftist racists. Yeah, sure. right. Left racists Absolutely. are very much about that. Yeah, uh, and like that's kind of where Slavoj Žižek and Jordan Peterson mm-hmm. were like in mm-hmm. agreement. Yeah. But yeah. I do think it, isn't in, it lovely when two white yeah, people right. and our brothers? Yeah. Um, in, in the context of the uh, of what you were saying about you know. For the think piece economy, just recounting your trauma and reliving all of, uh, you know, the worst things that have happened to you. I think there is something to the fact that, uh, you know, there's this liberal ideological project of seeing yourself as the most marginalized category that you can fit in and, you know, to some extent defining yourself by your trauma versus the, the left ideological project of seeing yourself as a worker and and understanding your role within the working class and the thing about the working class is that they are very much not marginal and it's about seeing your role within this this group of people who rather than being marginal are extremely central and Mm. uh, actually have a huge amount of power that they just need to organize and and to recognize how they can uh, execute Mm. on that power I, I, I see that, I can see that. I would also argue for me as a leftist though, I also find nowadays that the whole shtick around the working class has itself <laughs> become a certain kind of identity politics, which I love. You know, it's become, there's this kind of a centralized idea of the working class. Right. Uh, and I think a lot of people are glomming onto this idea of the working class as if somehow, even when they're not working class, everyone now identifies as working class. Whereas 10 years ago, nobody would, you know, deign to do so. So there's a way I think in which, but I I see, I know what you mean about, yes, you know, the notion of class and um, class disparities and all of that central to a left politics. But I think what to me as a leftist, what I find central is thinking about institutions and systems and how they also entrap and I think the, the, the working class, the, the idea of the working class fits into that for me, which is to think about how systems produce categories of people and produce systems of oppression. I think that for me, for instance, thinking about trauma, what is important for me is to think about, you know, I can't, I mean, you could, I suppose, stretch and locate class in that dynamic. And certainly class is there, right, in terms of access, right? Hannah Gadsby versus right. uh, young black people on the south side being told to vomit up their trauma. So absolutely, I agree with you on that, yes. Uh, the question of class is 
is an issue. But I think right now what's happening on the left in terms of this over-identification of the working class as a central problem is there's a way in which systems are being ignored. Um, what is a system that produces this idea of trauma as profit, for instance? Uh, the left doesn't want to think about that. The left would rather think about, well, is this a client? I'm not sure I'm making... Those are not incompatible. I don't think those forms of analysis are in any way incompatible. My concern is that there is this kind of... I don't, don't mean you, but there is, I think, a left out there that's getting very, very reductive about this. And certainly, you know, I mean, there's an internal back and forth in left politics trying to recenter the people who can't work, right? And, right. Uh, right. you know, understand that it's not your contribution. I mean, it depends, right? But there are plenty of uh, left positions that uh, don't center your contribution as, you know, the thing that makes you worthwhile as a human being or as a person. Uh, no, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, just one thing that I was interested in is asking both of you really about the one area where I thought Nanette actually did succeed. So I want to, you know, take the Hannah's advocate position here is I thought it was structurally kind of interesting. And this was the only kind of like uniquely interesting thing I thought was going on in the in the special in the Nanette special was yes exactly and you know Yasmin if you're not in the studio uh, Yasmin's already like miming the right. uh, you know this two point three point uh, uh, schematic that Hannah Gadsby develops in this show you know this difference between and I I, I think it's a problematic framing too but uh, you know this difference between the difference between a joke and a story is that a joke has a setup and a punchline whereas a story has a beginning middle and end uh, which is you know definitely an anti-cubist position to take but you know I, I thought it was uh, kind of cool the way and impressive the way she would structure a joke early in the set and then turn it into a story later on I thought that was actually you know for all of the uh, shitting on like the emoting and the affect that you know becomes valued through these processes I thought that was really affecting in some ways uh, the you know seeing a joke move kind of uh, be stripped away of its humor into like something more than itself uh i thought that was kind of interesting i kind of wish that her special had had a third part i wish it had had an ending in the same way it kind of seemed to be setting up you know this distinction and then i was left at the end feeling empty from it i didn't know where to go from there and i think there is something about this you know it, it was so funny the way it got called the future of comedy everywhere after it came out because it seemed to suggest no future for right. comedy for me, right? <laughs> that like, you know, and it was, it's funny that she's doing another special now and I know she's talked about this, she understands the irony of it, but that, you know, the whole Nanette special was a protest against doing comedy. It was a renunciation of stand-up as, you know, a broken form and saying like, I am not going to keep doing this for this art that doesn't take me into account. And then, you know, now she's famous and she's going to get paid a lot of money to do more comedy. So, you know, she's going to take that sacrifice, I guess. But yeah, I didn't really know what to do by the end of the show, except to kind of wallow in this uh, moment of uh, trauma, but not like shared trauma. You know, there was no restructuring. The way that event was all about the people on stage, it, you know, it all came back to Hannah Gadsby and I didn't know what to do from there. I didn't see myself. Uh, going anywhere with that any suggestion of what the future would be i just think she's a complete fraud in terms <laughs> of her <laughs> let me just put this out there i think she is because i've gone back and forth with people about how much of this is about her actually believing that her own version of things which is 
I'm not about, you know, comedy versus story. I think the best thing I can say about Gatsby is that she probably believes that version. But I also think there's a level, especially now that we see her doing comedy, as it were, I do think there's a level of fraudulence there that needs to be interrogated. I don't know how she... Um, you know, there are lots of examples of people like Richard Pryor um, who would talk about abuse um, and racism. <laughs> Richard Pryor, a black comedian, heaven forbid. Uh, what would he know about racism? You know, a black bisexual uh, comedian, famous mostly in the 70s. Um, and understood. he would be very self-deprecating yes, too. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, you know, so she acts like none comedy is not, I mean, <laughs> I am not by any means, my friend Clara is, but I'm not by any means, you know, a classic scholar. But I think that I, I, I can safely say <laughs> that there is a long intellectual tradition of interrogating what comedy really is. And in Hannah, Hannah Gatsby is very much a literalist and she seems to think comedy equals to laugh at. Um, and it's not, actually, comedy has a long complicated history. Uh, whether you're looking at Greek traditions, whether you're looking at Indian traditions, whether you're looking at traditions of minstrelsy in America, right? Black minstrelsy, for mm -hmm. instance. Um, Which is a basis of a huge amount yeah, of Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, and those roots still show themselves whether or not you see them, right? But if you've actually studied comedy as a genre and its history, then you understand these long histories. And So comedy is not about people making people laugh. And comedy is not about making people laugh at you. It's not, it's never been as simple as that. Um, so I think it's, I think what has happened is that Gatsby is coming out, as it were, is, is springing forth in a moment where comedy is understood in, sort of mediated through Netflixization of comedy, right? So, but really, strictly speaking, if you're going to go watch comedy in a club, in front of act, in front of and with actual people, comedy takes on a very different, um, uh, very different texture, as opposed to watching a person on a stage in a massive auditorium in Australia in front of two thousand people, but the cameras are mostly trained on her. That's a very different experience as well of of comedy, and that comedy is very different from live comedy, as you both know. So. And comedy in itself is not, again, I can't emphasize this enough, it's not, it's also not, you know, the, the sort of stereotype about comedy, right, is the laughing clown, or the, the crying clown, rather, right? That's a stereotype, which is, oh, comedy is always like this, this undercurrent of tragedy under it, etc. I'm not talking about that either, but I am talking about the fact that comedy is, is a very complex interplay between audience and performer. And all you see in Hannah Gatsby is performer. So I, that's not... And her distillation of comedy is very much like her distillation of, of cubism. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And actually, it's, a dis it's similar to her distillation of art, period. Mm -hmm. uh, she used to do this series in, in, in Australia. And it wasn't unfunny, but you know, she would look at famous paintings and mm. sort of denounce them in terms of the, you know, gender Dope. expression, etc. And those are actually kind of funny because they were sort of off-riffs and etc. Sure. But that's kind of all that she does. You know, when you extend it to a show, it becomes a lot flatter. Interesting. I didn't realize that background. Yes, yes. She, she, uh, she did that for a while. I think you can still see bits on YouTube. 
So, um... I do want to say, um... Yes. You talked about the crying clown. You can just call me by my name. I, I know I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you know. I am Peck The doctor, right? Yeah. Um. But, but, right, but the history of comedies is... And I think a lot of people now understand... If you turn on Netflix, there are at least 100 comedy sh- specials and... All, all of them are cheaply made because Netflix just has to go and turn on the cameras, really, and do some editing. But they're cheaply made, and it gives people the sense that, oh, look, I'm watching, you know, famous Chris Rock, for instance. Um, but yeah, so that's one issue that I have with her is with her notion of what comedy is. Yeah. It's remarkable to me that in that market of the like Netflix content mill stand up mm-hmm. comedy special, she was able to break out in such a big way. Because, like, even the year that she did that special, Cameron Esposito, who's another uh, lesbian stand-up comedian, had a special that was, like, covering very similar terrain. There were at least a few others. She, uh, like, very smartly knew how to... uh, It's almost like her stand-up special was crafted for think-piece writers. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. She has... Yeah. I think that's also, she's been doing this for a very long time. She's been a comedian for, I think, about 15, 20 years. I'm not sure how, you know, there's some story somewhere about how she and the Netflix people uh, conjoined, as it were, Hmm. and why it is. So Cameron Esposito is the one who talks about her... Is she the one who did the rape jokes special? Yeah, the rape joke special or something like that, right? She uses the term rape joke. Really, it's an interesting show. I think... I think a lot of it is, yes, marketing. You know, Netflix has tons of money. So much money. <laughs> they have so much money. There's <laughs> this show about Dolly Parton, this uh, series on Dolly Parton, this young teenager trying to find Dolly Parton. Was this the Dumpling? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah, the Dumpling. It was a horrible show. Oh, my God. But they uh, played almost entire Dolly Parton songs. Right. And I remember thinking... Do you get, yeah. they have the money. money yeah no one else can do that no one else and can right. do that Nanette similarly yes. I mean you know right like we can joke about the Warby Parker of uh, stand up specials but she also traffics in big names in a big way right yes. like people are a lot more interested in hearing Van about she talks about Van Gogh, Van Gogh and she, and yeah. yes. Picasso she takes, right? yeah she takes on the quote unquote big names of course she doesn't actually criticize anyone who's living such mm-hmm. as, for instance, you know, Jill Soloway and Jill right. Tambor. Yeah, or, <laughs> or even just Damien Hurst, like if you're an yeah. art person. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know, and this is something, I know we mentioned this article back the first time we talked about Nanette just for like five minutes on the show when it was a thing, but this article in the outline by Peter Moskowitz gets into, you know, to a certain extent, the subcultures of stand-up, right, of the Talks, queer yeah, people right. that they've Jewish seen. Jewish stand-up, you talk uh, about Jewish stand-up. Yeah. Yes, I mean, you know, uh, to my mind, not nearly as well as Hilton Owls did in yeah. his biographical essay about Richard Pryor, where he says basically there was the borscht yeah. belt of stand-up, and he then there was Richard Pryor, so right? And, yeah. you know, those, uh, like, from sweating for the laughs in, yeah. you know, the Dirty Dancer uh, bars or whatever to the kind of, you know, incredibly self-deprecating and uh, just, like, self-destroying for Richard Pryor methods of comedy. I mean, uh, stand-up has all these things within it, right. right? I mean, comedy killed Pryor as much as... Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. As much as it kept him alive, yeah. right? So, absolutely a brilliant, brilliant man. Oh, who was he? Oh, my God, I'm trying to remember some. The woman he was married to? Or? No, no, no. I'm trying to remember one of the women he... T- 
Never mind. Oh, are you talking about um? Oh, um, what's her name? Uh, yeah. The lesbian. No, I think it was Margot Kidder. Was it Margot Kidder who dated him for a while? Oh, maybe I don't know. I was um, thinking about the show he did with Lily Tomlin, where I think right. she was in blackface. Oh no no no! Uh, well, one of his partners, one of his partners, uh, talked about his genius actually and how brilliant he was as an actor. And she said something that no one ever saw. And he actually said, right. yeah, no one knows, because she was astonished at how good an actor he was. And he said, yeah, no one sees that. Right, yeah. That was one of his great sadnesses, right. I think, was he right. tried to get into acting, where the money was, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, uh, and stand-up is freaking hard. To right, and he's amazing in, like, Blazing Saddles and the right. stuff that he was allowed yeah. to do. Yeah, he, was a, he, he had was a few dramatic later. roles. He was um, mm-hmm. in Blue Collar, the mm-hmm. Paul Schrader film, which right. was great. So, yeah, so... Yeah, anyway, we were talking about comedy being super uh, complicated and her not really absorbing that or refract. And I think I saw the Carmen Esposito show as research, uh, of course, <laughs> you know, and it was sort of interesting. You know, it wasn't very good, wasn't very funny, but it was much more nuanced in many ways, more compassionate. Uh, she ends with this sh- bit, which is actually kind of sweet about... Uh, how she had been sort of protected by a male doormate and I can't remember how but she came into possession of his boxer briefs of his boxers actually and she talks about how she held on to his I forget how she came into possession of them but she held on to them and she still has them and she talks about how you know what the, I hold on to them because they remind me of the protective stance he took towards me and how much he helped me. And I, I'm I'm saying it all wrong, so I'm not even making it funny. But she tried to make it funny, and it was very sweet, you know. But the whole thing about her and Ray, she it was a very complicated incident in some ways, or rather the way she renders it. Right, she tries to talk about the complexities of what it means to come from a family. She came from an extremely, I think, a very very. Um, sort of uh, fundamentalist uh, family. So she had absolutely no experience with sexuality at all until Mm. she moved away to college. Mm. So there she was, you know, 18 years old and suddenly boom, you're in a co-ed dorm, et cetera, et cetera. I'm getting some of the details wrong, so please people do not write to Dan and Pete to tell them how wrong I am. Um, But basically it was a complicated narrative about what is it, so it wasn't just you know, I was raped by this horrible person or I had this sexual encounter with a horrible person. It was, this is how weird my whole life was. This is what brought me to that moment. Mm-hmm. This complicated way in which American culture doesn't allow us to talk about sex and sexuality gets even worse if you're raised in a fundamentalist household, etc. Right, the, this weird American yes, combination exactly. of Puritanism and, and the sexual revolution. Yes, exactly, exactly. Which is what every 18-year-old girl is supposed to experience when she goes away to college, right? All of his Buffy fans know about this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Buffy gets badly wounded, and that's Buffy, right, who gets badly wounded by this guy who says, oh, you know, being sexually... Well, it's, it's a complicated thing. And that's what she tries, Esposito tries to convey. Not, you know, me, innocent, him, bad, right? It's, a re- it's talking about the culture that brings about these moments more than anything else, which is not what Gatsby does. What Gatsby does is basically say, I was brutalized and this is what happened to me. And if you don't cry for me, you don't, uh, you just, you know, if you don't cry for me, you are horrible. Comedy is horrible. If you laugh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it reminds me very much actually of what we just talked, we talked about at the very beginning about social media responses 
to tragedies, quote unquote, right? The, the idea that if you're not tweeting or Facebooking about the latest tragedy that just occurred, you're a horrible person, right? There's a way in which I think uh, now, Pete, this brings me to your question, like why was she more popular than say Esposito? Mm -hmm. I think it's because what Gatsby does is able to do is in many ways to mimic that transparency that social media foists upon us, which is you are an uncomplicated human being with these very transparent emotional life, with this very transparent emotional life, good, bad, evil, pure, innocent, predatory, etc. Those are the only narratives through which you can relay, you know, through which you can live. And that's what our entire show really does, which I think is why you were talking about it would have been interesting to think about joke versus story, but she doesn't go there because there is no there there. There's nothing to go because that wasn't her intention at all. Well, then... I mean, we're talking about intentionality. <laughs> Dan is grinning at me like, before we get just say that? Before we get into intentionality, we are at time. So yes. let's end with a final plea for all of the Netflix execs and all of the French yes. billionaires out there to give your money to Carmen Esposito and of course to our returning champion Yasmin Nair. Thank you so yeah, much for joining you. us. And thank you. Please, um, please read this article in Evergreen about Hannah Gadsby and Nanette. That and also the original. Exactly, yes. <laughs> so has, has it been edited since then? Yes. The, the, uh, so the Netflix thing I have not edited. That is in its pure virgin form. <laughs> Right to the system. <laughs> right? And the Evergreen Review, uh, my wonderful editor, Dale Pegg, did cut it down, especially the front, mm. uh, especially the beginning portion. But the beginning portion is also really interesting mm. in um, in uh, my original. So both both uh, versions are, are cute. Well, we'll post the links to both thank in the description. So no, thank you. And is there anything else you want to plug anywhere? People should look for your work coming uh, up or anything like that? support you guys. We'll bring me on constantly. Stop. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> And yes, uh, give me money. <laughs> give us all money so we can continue to bring the revolution yeah. to you. <laughs>